Well, as we come before God's word, let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift of your word in our own language. Father, we pray this morning as we open it that you would grant us understanding, but you would also grant us the peace that comes from knowing you. May this be an encouraging message, we pray. Please build up those who are downhearted this morning through the preaching of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I do hope that this this message this morning is an encouraging message for you. When I was a teenager, the pastor at our church, Dr. Barry Horner, introduced us to Pilgrim's Progress. We spent about six months in the youth group working our way through the first half of Pilgrim's Progress. And uh, there's a lot of people that have not read it. I want to encourage you to read Pilgrim's Progress. I know there's a lot of people that struggle with the language. They try and they say, oh, let's get the original and read it in the original. And it's just hard going. And I understand that. But there is a new version that's come out. This is by Cheryl V. Ford. Up on the screen you can see the new cover that they've given it. This is the older one that they've had. Uh, if you want to come and have a look at this later on, you're welcome to it. Um, I'm going to be quoting Pilgrim's Progress twice this morning. But the reason I recommend her version specifically is that it's faithful to what Bunyan wanted said, but it's in modern English. So it's very easy to read, um, great for young people to read or for you to read to young people, uh, very easily understood. You may not understand that, that Pilgrim's Progress is, is divided into two parts. The first part is the one that most people read. That's the one where Christian goes from the, celestial, from the city of destruction toward the celestial city and the adventures that he found on the way. Part two, well, the one that most people don't read, um, is about his wife Christiana and her kids and their journey to the celestial city. And I want to read to you a scene from part two. And that's the picture that you can see on the right-hand side of the screen. In this particular case, Christiana and her companions were in the house of a man named Interpreter. And this is from Cheryl Ford's um, version, so you'll get an idea of the language as I read it out to you. Quote, Following the tour, the Interpreter took them into a room where they saw a man who could only look in a downward direction. In his hand, he held a muckrake, And someone was standing over his head with a celestial crown in his hand, offering to trade it for the rake. The man, however, never looked up, nor did he acknowledge the offer, but kept raking the muck that was on the floor. I believe I understand what this means, said Christiana. Isn't this a figure of the man of this world? You have answered correctly, said Interpreter. His muckrake illustrates his carnal mind. As you can see, he would rather rake up the straws and sticks and the dust of the floor than obey him who is calling from above with the celestial crown. The point of this is to show that for some, heaven is no more than a fairy tale. They think that not only, sorry, they think that only those things that are on the earth are real. In view of the fact that he can only look down, you can recognise the truth that these earthly things, when they are allowed to control people's minds, have a power to carry their hearts completely away from God. Oh, deliver me from this rake, said Christiana. 
That prayer, said interpreter, has been so little used that it is almost rusty. Scarcely one in 10,000 will pray, keep me from the snare of earthly riches. The straw, the sticks and the dust of this world are greatly prized and most people seek after them. Mercy and Christiana both wept and cried out, oh, it is only too true, end quote. However, I want to take the picture that you can see on the, on the board and, and take it a little bit further. Because it's not just unbelievers who toil with the proverbial muckrake without seeing the crown which is offered to them. There are often very faithful Christians who, because of their toil for the Lord over many years, are likewise stooped down in their work. And they forget to look up and realise that Jesus holds a crown just above their head. They are faithful people, but they are weighed down by this world. And as a result, they fail to gain encouragement from the scriptures. And yet the scriptures have been given us for that purpose, given to us for that purpose. Let me read Romans 15 verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So please understand, I'm not trying to tell you off this morning if you are in this position. Instead, I want to encourage you to take the time to look up, to recall what God has for us as believers, and to be able to see those blessings and gain heart from that. So to accomplish that, I want to draw your attention to an obscure but very valuable verse of Scripture. This Scripture verse may be likened to a diamond that is lying in the mud. It needs to be polished to shine brilliantly. The passage that Hans read to us before from Hebrews, from, from Nehemiah chapter 8 um, is our text this morning. And the title of the, the message is The Joy of the Lord is Your Strength. You can see that there in verse 10. But I do want to give you the context. So if we go to the next slide, I think we've got a map. Yep. Nehemiah himself lived sometime after the Babylonian captivity. So chronologically, we are right towards the end of the Old Testament. A tiny group of Jews had chosen to return from Babylon following that captivity, and that was about 536 BC. And they'd managed to rebuild the temple, and life for them was incredibly tough. The temple was finished in 516 BC. And following their return and the, the completion of the temple, there's a gap in the Old Testament chronology of about 60 years. In about 473 BC, we have the events depicted in the book of Esther, which occurred back in Susa, the capital of uh, Persia. You can see that over on the right-hand side. Susa's all the way on the right-hand side of the map there. Obviously, Jerusalem is on the left in Judah. A long way away. So that's where Susa is and that's where the events that are depicted in the book of Esther occurred. By God's providence, a beautiful Jewess by the name of Esther became queen and God used her to save not only the Jews in Susa but the entire Jewish nation from annihilation. A wicked man named Haman had come up with this plan and put together a date where he would, where people would be allowed to kill the Jews, 
throughout the whole kingdom. And the reason I've got the map there is that all that area, the green and the yellow, are all Persia. So we are talking a huge destruction of Jewish people. Now a little later, Ezra was introduced into the Old Testament chronology. He grew up in Babylonia and he was the one that led a second wave of returnees to Jerusalem and that's about 458 BC. A few years after Ezra arrived in Jerusalem, about 455 BC, the events recorded in the book of Nehemiah began. Now Nehemiah himself was a cupbearer to the king of Persia. This was a hugely responsible job and allowed immediate access to the king. And whilst he served in that capacity, Nehemiah's brother Hanani and some others journeyed from Jerusalem and told him that things in Jerusalem were not good. The walls of Jerusalem were still broken down, the gates had been destroyed by fire. And upon hearing this, Nehemiah wept for days, then took courage, went to the king and asked permission to be able to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild its walls and and gates. God granted him favour in that task, so he then travelled to Jerusalem and, and that's, that's how he came to be in Jerusalem. Now if you go to the next slide, we'll start to get an idea of how it goes. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but Nehemiah then enthused the people of Jerusalem to start building the wall and they did that. By the time we get to chapter 4 verse 6, the wall had reached half its height. But you need to understand that once you get the wall to half its height, everything from there on is a lot harder. Because when you build the bottom half, or when you first start, of course the stones that have been pulled down are all around you. You don't have to go very far to find them. But as you go higher, those stones of course run out. So you've got to go further to go and get them, and then when you bring them, you've got to lift them up higher to be able to put them on top of the wall. So all of that slows the rate of progress and, of course, fatigue then sets in. In addition to those sort of, uh, op- those sort of um, uh, issues, there was opposition from outside of Jerusalem as well. Let me read to you chapter 4, verses 7 to 9. But when Samballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem were going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. But there was a physical problem. Because the workers were separated as they were working on different portions of the wall, each group then became vulnerable. If an attack occurred in one section, nobody else was, would know about it, and of course they would be left to fight on their own. Nehemiah's response to that was to have each man strap his sword to his side while he was working, and some of them held trumpets. So if an attack occurred, they could sound the trumpet, and then others surrounding them could then come to their aid. The picture of this was adopted by C.H. Spurgeon for his monthly newsletter. It was called The Sword and the Trowel. You can see a picture of them, of Nehemiah and them working there, and that's where, this is where, this is the passage where that uh, phrase comes from. It depicts two aspects of Christian defence. Obviously the sword, 
which is defence, and Christian duty represented by the trowel. So the work continued and finally the wall was finished. Chapter 6, verses 15 to 16. So the wall was finished in 52 days and where all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Now this is all background as we come to Nehemiah chapter 8 and this basically brings us to our passage this morning which Hans wrote, uh, read to us. Um, so let, let, let's have a look, if you turn to Nehemiah chapter 8, or should we go to the end of Nehemiah chapter 7 verse 73. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants and all Israel lived in their towns and when the seventh month had come the people of Israel were in their towns and all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. The question is, why would Ezra want those people to be gathered together on the first day of the seventh month? Why that day particularly? Well, Leviticus 23, verses 23 to 24, gives us the answer. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with the blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. So that's the Feast of Trumpets. And this was the first time that Ezra appeared within Nehemiah's book. Obviously they were contemporaries. But he was obviously well known to the people. Now it may seem strange to us, but these Jewish people who had grown up in Persia had never heard Moses' law. So then we come to verses 2 and 3. Chapter 8, verse 2. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month, and he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Go down to verse 8. And they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Now Hans read to us the names, which I don't have to do, which is nice. Thank you for doing that. (laughs) Now the names, of course, mean nothing to us today. But it does show us how careful Nehemiah and Ezra were to, to record those events. Those people were important and they are in God's word. But as the people heard the word of God through Moses read to them, they were horrified. They were horrified at how far short they had fallen from God's law. And so as they heard God's word explained, they started to weep. And these were tears of repentance. Look at verses 9 to 12. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the the priest and the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For the people wept as they heard the words of the law. 
Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites claimed, calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy, do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. So that's the background to our passage. Well, that's our passage. The, the, the phrase I want, to, want us to uh, concentrate on this morning is there in verse 10 in the English Standard Version, which is the version that I'm using this morning, it says, Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And it's that phrase, the joy of the Lord is your strength, that's what I want to concentrate on this morning. So in our remaining time, I want to unpack that statement and first of all look at what it meant to them and also what it will then mean to us. So that's a fairly long introduction, but we're now ready to go to the text. So first point this morning, point number one, the joy of the Lord. Now in preparing a sermon, when we want to examine a phrase like we're doing this morning, what we'll often do is look at other examples of it in scripture and look at the context of them and all that sort of stuff. However, this is a problem because this is the only time in all scripture where this phrase appears. So in preparing a sermon of this type, we had to go a little bit broader. There is a similar phrase that also is in the book of Nehemiah. If you turn over to chapter 12, turn over to chapter 12, obviously the same sort of time uh, we're looking at here. The people have completed the wall and this is the dedication of the wall. Chapter 12, look at verse 43. Nehemiah 12 verse 43 and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced for God had made them rejoice with great joy the women and children also rejoiced and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away now it's clear in both cases that the joy that they experienced was directly linked to God and also the fact that he had allowed them to build the walls of Jerusalem so that helps us a little bit. Now, thinking very simply here, it may sound obvious, but it's important for us to realise that the joy of the Lord does exist. Right? We know that because the verse here in, Jer- in Nehemiah 8 says it exists. No surprises there. But secondly and more importantly, that such joy only comes from God and it has God as its object. Now that's important and it's not as obvious. The joy of the Lord is based very much on God's attributes. That comes out in the verse but it's slightly veiled. Now if you look there, go back to uh, chapter 8 verse 10. And if you notice, I'm not sure what the NIV has, but the ESV has two different renderings of the word Lord in that verse. The first one is capital L, lowercase o-r-d, and the second one in the ESV is all in capitals, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Is it the same in the NIV? Okay, right, the same. The question, of course, is, is there a difference, and if so, what is that difference, and does it matter? The answer is yes, they are different, and yes, it does matter. 
The, the original Hebrew language and also the Greek used different words for God's name, which, is highlight, which highlighted different aspects of his nature. Now, in English, we don't have that so much. So what the translators have done is that they have adopted a practice whereby they use different ways of writing that word Lord in order to give us an indication of what is being um, mentioned there or what's intended. So the two examples there are different names for God which show different aspects of his character. The first one there, the first, first word Lord, capital L, lowercase o-r-d, is the Hebrew word Adonai. And that particular name emphasises God as sovereign, ruler, owner, master. Basically, Adonai tells us God is the boss. That's the first uh, rendering there. The second one, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord, is the Hebrew word Yahweh which emphasises God as the self-existent one, the eternal God. And it was always used to remind Israel that he was not only eternal, but he was covenant-keeping as well. So in your Bibles, when you see the word Lord all in capitals, that is there to tell you this is the covenant-keeping aspect of God. That's what's being uh, reminded for you. So you could say that Nehemiah 8.10 has the word Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, and it's there to remind the people that the joy of the covenant-keeping, eternal, faithful God was to be their strength. Obviously that joy is inextricably linked to God's covenant-keeping, eternal nature. And the people had experienced that in building the wall in just 52 days. So that's our first point, looking at that phrase, the joy of the Lord. Second point this morning, the prerequisite for us experiencing the joy of the Lord. Well, how do we interpret that term joy in verse 10? Well, like everything else when we study scripture, we look at the context And this brings us back to the history that we looked at earlier. The Jewish returnees, those who had lived in Jerusalem for decades, eking out their meagre living for themselves, had just completed a monumentally difficult task, that of building the walls and the gates of Jerusalem. And they'd been able to do it, as I said, in just 52 days. Moreover, that morning they had just heard the law of God given through Moses not only read out to them, but also explained clearly. And their response was that they wept as they heard the law being read out. These were tears of repentance in response to hearing God's word. And it's precisely that point in Nehemiah that Ezra and the the Levites, sorry, it's precisely that point in Nehemiah's record that Ezra and Nehemiah and the Levites encouraged them using that phrase. Look again at verses 9 and 10. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people and all the said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. 
and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So it's crucial that we understand that that statement, the joy of the Lord is your strength, was a response to the tears that they had wept, those tears of repentance. In other words, the joy of the Lord became available to them as a source of strength precisely because they had repented. Let me read that again. The joy of the Lord became available to them as a source of strength precisely because of their repentance. That is key. And it is the same for us. We will never experience the joy of the Lord unless there has been a brokenness and a repentance. I want to put it to you and I want you to listen carefully to me as I say this. Only redeemed people can ever experience the joy of the Lord. If you personally have never been broken by your rebellion against God, then you will not experience the joy of the Lord, much less be able to make it your strength. If you are an unbeliever here this morning, that's where you need to start. The Jewish people that day had been cut to the heart as, with guilt as they realized the gulf that stood between them and their God. It is the same for unbelievers today. If you this morning are not a Christian, you need to understand that between you and God, there there lies an enormous pile of sin, a huge gulf, if you like, whichever analogy you want to use, which is your sin and means that you cannot see God. Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Your sin, if you like, is piled up between you and God so that you can't even see God and you need to deal with that issue of sin first. But for the rest of us, all of us who have been already Redeemed and dealt with that, that historical sin. And also if we are dealing on a daily basis with indwelling sin, for us the possibility of experiencing the joy of the Lord then becomes a distinct possibility. So the question is how can we experience the joy of the Lord and how can it become our strength? Well, to answer that question, I basically want to draw together all the threads that we've looked at so far. Again, I'm addressing Christians here who daily confess sin and diligently study God's word in order to grow. And if that describes you this morning, then you too, like the people of Nehemiah's day, are able to revel in the joy of the Lord and likewise make it your strength. This brings us to point number three this morning, how we too can experience the joy of the Lord. Now at the start of the sermon I read out the quote from Pilgrim's Progress of the man with the muckrake who was unable to look up and see the blessings offered to him. Now in order for us to enjoy the joy of the Lord, we too need to be able to look up and also to then recall what God has already done for us in order for us to be able to live in the hope of the promises that he has given to us. 
Let me remind you of Romans 15 verse 4, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. So that's my my desire for you this morning is for you to be able to lift your eyes to see what God has for you and for that to then encourage you to be able to go out and continue your Christian walk. In order to do that, I want to remind you of what we already have now in Christ. Now this is by no means an exhaustive study that I want to look at with you, but I do want to look at four different aspects that do apply to all believers today. The first one, we as Christians have been redeemed. We as Christians have been redeemed. Now for this section I'm going to get you to look up a few different passages of scripture. The first one's Isaiah 43. Hopefully they'll be up on the screen for you if you miss them. Isaiah 43. Look there at Isaiah 43 verse 1. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And it goes on. Turn over to chapter 44, verses 21 to 23. Isaiah 44, verse 21. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Now those two verses speak specifically of the redemption that God offered to Israel. Now you might respond to me, yeah, okay, I see that, but I'm not part of Israel. Those verses don't really apply to me. And if that's what you were thinking, that's really good, good on you for doing that. Because you should think that way. The promises made to Israel were meant for Israel. Unless scripture specifically applies those truths in the New Testament to Christians. And the question is, has God done that? And the answer is yes. Let me turn you over to Colossians chapter 1. So turn to the New Testament, look at Colossians chapter 1. And here I want to read verses 9 to 14. Colossians 1 verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins." 
If you are a believer here this morning, you too have been redeemed. Verse 14 says it. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1, please. 1 Peter chapter 1. Now here, as I said before, I'm using the English Standard Version. I want to read it from the New American Standard Version um, because the NASB uh, uses the word redeemed, which the ESV doesn't. So this is 1 Peter 1, verses 17 to 19 in the New American Standard Bible. If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the lamb, the blood of Christ. Right? Now, it uses the negative term of it. You've not been redeemed by this and this, but by the blood of Christ. But certainly you have been redeemed. The New American Standard Bible uses that word redeemed there. Now, you may like to keep your finger there in First Peter. We're going to come back there in a moment. Or a bookmark, whichever you like. But this then brings us to our second point. Not only have we been redeemed, but as Christians, our sins have been forgiven. Go back to Ephesians chapter 1, please. So see, keep your finger there in First Peter if you like. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 8. Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Now we'll come back in a moment and read on. But you can see there that our sins have been forgiven. That's our second point. Thirdly, not only have we been redeemed and our sins been forgiven, but as Christians we have an eternal inheritance. Are you still in there, Ephesians 1? Let's look at verse, let's go on from verse 9 down to verse 14. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fulfill, the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. What does that mean? Well, part of it is that the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you, if you are a believer, 
He is the guarantee or the signature on the check, if you like, that assures us that our inheritance will come to pass. The fact that the Holy Spirit indwells you now assures us that the future promise will also be accomplished. The eternal inheritance is absolutely assured to us. There are some Christians that doubt whether they will actually receive the inheritance of eternal life. They think that they personally have the ability to stuff up their Christian life here on earth to such an extent that when they get to heaven they won't make it through the gates. And such thinking is tragic. If that is you, then you need to read slowly and to ponder carefully what you read there in Ephesians 1 verse 14. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit is far more powerful than you are. And he's also far more powerful than your ability to botch stuff up here on earth. If you are truly a Christian, then you have the Holy Spirit now. And he will guard that eternal inheritance as well until you take possession of it. But there's even more to it than that. Turn over to chapter 2 and look at verses 4 to 6 on the the same thread. Ephesians 2 verses 4 to 6. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now look there at verse 6. It says there, that he raised us up with him, past tense. Right? We can say, okay, we understand that with the spiritual tense, that's fine. But then it says he has seated us with him in the heavenly places. That word seated is also in the past tense. And you say, well, hang on, I'm not in, seated in the heavenly places, I'm here on earth. We are not currently in heaven. But as far as God is concerned, our eternal inheritance is so certain that he has recorded it in the past tense. Let me turn you to another passage. Let's go back to 1 Peter and turn over chapter 1, verses 3 to 9. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Beloved, the inheritance that we have is imperishable, undefiled, unfading and kept in heaven for you. The inheritance is yours and it is there if you are a believer. The end of the realisation of that eternal inheritance ought to be rejoicing with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. There in verse 8. Do these things cause you to lift your eyes? They should. They should. Not only have we been redeemed and our sins been forgiven, not only do we have an eternal inheritance, but as Christians we, have also, we also have the promise of eternal life. Turn over to 1 John chapter 2, please. A couple of pages over from, from Peter. 1 John chapter 2. Look at verses 24 and 25. 1 John chapter 2, verse 24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will, be, will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. The promise there is eternal life. The promise was made by God and God does not lie. Simple as that. We have eternal life. So let's go to our final point this morning, response. What is our response? The response is very simple. We need to persevere. As I said, do these these verses stir your heart? Don't they make you sort of push out your chest a little bit and sort of walk a little bit taller? Do they give you a resolve to follow Christ more closely? I hope they do. But the thing is, we know these truths. I can guarantee that that if you are a believer this morning and you've been a believer for any length of time, these are not new to you. It's not, wow, I've never read those before. The problem is we forget. And our walk through the week often causes us to forget these sort of truths. And so there are some people that come to church on Sunday morning and they've just barely made it through the door because they've been so weighed down. Bunyan also depicted this plight. Let me read a section from section one or part one of Pilgrim's Progress. In this section, Christian and Hopeful were nearing the celestial city. They'd already met the shepherds who pointed them on their way. And Bunyan says this, this is also from Cheryl Ford's version. Quote, I saw then in my dream that they went on till they came to a certain country where the air naturally tended to cause drowsiness in those unaccustomed unaccustomed to it. Hopeful's mind began to grow dull and he became sleepy. He then said to Christian, I'm getting so drowsy that I can hardly keep my eyes open. Let's lie down here and take a short nap. No way, said Christian, if we sleep here we may never wake up. Why not, my brother? Sleep is sweet to the one who is exhausted. We may be refreshed if we take a nap. Christian then said, Don't you remember that one of the shepherds warned us to beware of the enchanted ground? He meant that we should beware of sleeping there. 
So let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. First Thessalonians 5 verse 6. I admit my fault, said Hopeful. If I had been here alone, I would have run the risk of death by falling asleep. I see that what, what the wise man said is true. Two are better than one. Ecclesiastes 4 verse 9. Up to this time, your company has been a gift of mercy to me. You shall surely have a good reward for your effort. Matthew 10 verses 42 to 43. You have blessed me too, said Christian. But to keep the drowsiness of this place from overcoming us, let us keep talking about those things that edify our spirits. Indeed, I agree with all my heart, Hopeful replied. Well, where shall we begin, asked Christian. Where God began with us, but you start the discussion if you will. Then Christian said, first I will sing you this song. When the saints grow sleepy, let them come here and listen how to pilgrims' words remain clear. Yes, let them learn and become wise, so let them open their dull slumbering eyes. The fellowship of saints, if managed well, keeps them awake in spite of all hell. End quote. Christian then asked Hopeful for his testimony, and in doing so, both of them made their way through the enchanted ground unharmed. But you and I need to persevere as well. It's far too easy for us to become drowsy in our Christian walk. Let me encourage you with one last passage. Turn, up, turn over to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, I want to read from verse 36 down to chapter 12, verse 5. Hebrews 11, starting in verse 36. This is in the great uh, catalogue of the heroes of the faith. Verse 36. Others suffered mocking and flogging, or even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Beloved, as each one of us walks through this world, it feels like we too are walking through the enchanted ground. The Christian walk is a daily battle and there is an ever-present temptation to lie down and to sleep for a while, but we cannot do that. 
Indeed, we need to remind one another, as Christian did to Hopeful, of the need to press on daily and to build one another up in faith. By fixing our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, and by daily repenting of sin and thereby keeping short accounts with God, then the joy of the Lord is able to become our strength daily as well. I trust that this has been an encouragement to you and in your walk you will go out and honour God this week. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you. Lord, as we look at the joy of the Lord, we pray that it would become our strength. That as we walk through this world and, and we toil, as we battle, Father, we pray that you too would become our joy and our strength each day that we would remember the truths that that we have in your word, the promises that you have given to us, that these things would cause us to lift our eyes, to praise you, to glorify you. We thank you for the Holy Spirit and for the guarantee that he is for us, the guarantee, the hope that we have for eternal salvation. Lord, I pray that these truths would become real to us, and that we would continue to press on in the fight. May we do this for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.